The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. And by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Points of Courage, a new business podcast from Hiscox about courage. Get Points of Courage wherever you find your podcasts. More about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X dot com. Hiscox. Encourage courage. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 26, 2016, the Wiener edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., alone again because John Dickerson has betrayed me. He's betrayed the city of Washington and gone to New York for today. Hello, John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hi, David. I'm sorry that I'm not in your company. Me too. Uh, also not in our company, nor in John's company, not in my company or John's company, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Hello, John. Hi. On this week's GabFest, a grand unified theory of Hillary Clinton scandals. Can she overcome the combined, the combined volcanic disaster of her email scandal, Vince Foster, Monica Lewinsky, Whitewater, everything that Trump is throwing against her? Then the fantastic new documentary, Wiener. Emily and I saw it. You should, too. John has questions. We'll talk about it. Then a new twist in the Gawker Hulk Hogan lawsuit as Bond villain-esque billionaire Peter Thiel admits that he has secretly bankrolled Hulk Hogan in an effort to destroy Gawker. What a case. Wow. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will talk about the Bill Cosby trial, the impending Bill Cosby trial. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Remember, July 13th, 2016 at 7 p.m., we're doing a live show in Washington, D.C. It will be bankrolled by Peter Thiel, I hope. That show is going to be at the Warner Theater. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. It's going to be great. It's going to be right before the conventions. There's going to be tons of drama. It's barely a month out from that. So July 13th at 7 o'clock, Warner Theater, slate.com slash live to get tickets. Please do come join us. It's going to be an awesome show. Is Hillary Clinton a fundamentally scandal-ridden and corrupt person, or is she a victim victim of a an unfair standard where she is held to account for things that other people would not be held to account for? We have a confluence of Clinton scandalia this week. Yesterday came news, the, probably the biggest news of all, that the Inspector General of the State Department said that Hillary Clinton had never asked for permission to use a private email server, nor would she have received permission had she asked. And there was a unrolling of lots of new details or reminders of details about how uh, weaselly and deceptive she was in setting up that server and how careless she may have been with quite secure information. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has been excavating charges that uh, Hillary Clinton abetted her husband in abusing women throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And hey, that Hillary Clinton may have even had a role in Vince Foster's suicide, which was probably not a suicide if you believe the wink-winks that Trump is giving. 
And also don't forget about Benghazi, that, that too. So one of these scandals that came up this week, Emily, is not like the other. The email server scandal appears to actually to be real. So what did you make of yesterday's news that the inspector general was very unhappy with Hillary Clinton? You know, I the the timing of all of this is interesting. I was so ready to defend Clinton against Trump's scurrilous attacks about the 70s, 80s and early 90s. I just feel like the statute of limitations has run on all of that stuff and I'm not interested in it. But the email thing, the statute of limitations has not run. It is very much alive and it feeds right into our conceptions or at least my conceptions of Hillary Clinton as being high-handed and entitled and kind of paranoid. And I I don't think that, you know, any real harm was done, but it really just, like, taps into my concerns about what kind of president she's going to be. And given the poll numbers showing how much mistrust there is out there in the public about her, this seems really bad for her. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. It's not like I think her candidacy is over or something, but it really does feel to me like a wound that is just going to keep bleeding. John, does does this news from yesterday seem as devastating in the long term as it does in the immediate term? Is this going to stick? I think if she keeps giving it fresh reason to hurt her, it will stick. The problem for her is that in her answers, even in response to this inspector general's report, the answers are still not true. I mean, they're spin. They're, you know, she says, well, my predecessors do this. No, her predecessors didn't. And to the extent there was any predecessors, it was a predecessor, just one. And it was just of a totally different order what Colin Powell did. Voters are going to have to decide, you know, when Hillary Clinton is alone and making decisions and when she's talking to the country, is she going to be more or less truthful than Donald Trump? And his truthfulness in a in a president, something they care about. So those are the two relevant questions. You know, in the many years we've talked about the show, the, the scandals that hurt candidates are ones where they land into an existing characterization or caricature of the candidate, where they then embody that caricature in real time, which fulfills the claims of the opponent and then, you know, raises fresh concerns. Right. There is this shocking detail. So that Colin Powell did do this, but as you say, John, in a different fashion. And then there was a middle-level State Department employee who was the ambassador to Kenya uh, in 2011 and 2012 who did this and was repeatedly, unlike Hillary Clinton, was repeatedly chastised and chastised and chastised by the State Department and basically was about to be disciplined for not converting. And then he went out of service. But it, it is clear that what she did was totally irregular. It was not what other people were doing. And if she had not been the Secretary of State, she would have been stopped pronto from doing it. And so her, as you say, her explanation does not hold water. I watched, was like nudging around uh, the television last night and happened on CNN. And there was some poor schlub who'd been sent out as the Hillary Clinton representative to make her case on this panel on CNN. And it was just, the explanations were feeble. It was, it it, it just, it didn't hold water at all. I, I'm interested in your advice on this, Emily and John, but she needs to kind of own up, not play defense on this anymore. Just kind of give up and just just say, like, we really screwed this up. It was a mistake. I would not do it again. And I've learned from it. Well, I think you're right. But I also think the problem with this is that, I mean, now I'm just going to, like, speculate. But one imagines, why did Hillary Clinton have her private email server and refuse to use this? I mean, she did say um, to the State Department folks, 
I don't want any of the personal to be accessible. I, I want to keep that separate. And, you know, if you're Hillary Clinton, the reasons you care about that are deeply rooted in your psyche and your, your history. You get blamed for Vince Foster's suicide, and people say that that was a murder, and they kind of darkly hint at your complicity in it for a really long time in some respectable news outlets. This, like, crazy conspiracy theory takes root. So this is the thing about the Clintons and about Hillary in particular. They're, she has a rational basis for being paranoid. But it's super unattractive. And when she talks about that and she talks about, you know, the right-wing conspiracy machine, she also sounds kind of like a crazy person. That's not helpful. So I don't think there is any... It's hard for me to see how they can craft a true, deeper explanation for this that makes her sympathetic. John, what um, do you think she should do? She has said she's sorry for this. If she's sorry, she's admitting that she did something wrong. So if you've already admitted you're doing something wrong, then own that. Don't say, I'm sorry, but then everything I did was okay. Because A, everything you did wasn't okay. And B, it's inconsistent with your posture of being apologetic. It's interesting. Donald Trump is never says he ever made a mistake about anything. And so basically she's in a campaign now against an, an inspector general, not against Donald Trump uh, and in, and against editorial pages of newspapers that are otherwise on her team or that the public would think are, are on her team. So not good for her. And the crazy part of this is that so this happens in a week where Donald Trump is bringing up all this nonsense, all this just crap about Old Vince Foster and women that Bill Clinton did or did not do nasty things to those so-called scandals in which Hillary Clinton, I think, bears no no significant culpability, has no bearing on her comporting herself in public office. But the fact that now you have this email thing, which does have real substance to it, makes Trump's attacks on these other things suddenly feel weighty or that the whole story of Clinton as an untrustworthy, paranoid person who who's scheming at every turn, which was the narrative that Trump was setting up now has like, oh, yeah, in fact, that's true. Look at what she did with her email. And, and it, it gives credence to this stuff, which deserves no credence and is just crap. So the question then is, how does how does this get sorted by voters? People both think uh, on both in both parties and across both parties think that these are uh, dishonest politicians. Are people going to see that as the same and not care and basically say that it's about something else? It's about these issues over here on the side, whether it's you know wages or who's going to do better uh, on the issue of healthcare or whatever. They've already in the individual parties seem to have made that conclusion for both candidates. And so will this be an issue that either A, everybody says, this isn't something upon which I'm going to base my vote. B, are they going to say, well, let's look at the reasons we have uh, reason to question the honesty and trustworthiness of each candidate and measure them against each other. What's the qualitative difference between the two? Or C, because Hillary Clinton has this special fresh case that has the legal component to it, is she going to get evaluated on her own in a way that will be harmful for her, because of course she wants this to be a choice, not a referendum. So I'm just wondering which of the three that will be. All right, let's wrap this up. Emily, actually I have one question for you, which is just going back to the kind of Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Willey, Paula Jones, Monica Lewinsky. Hillary Clinton was never more popular than when the Lewinsky scandal 
broke and when she was the, the victim of her husband that was the high point in her popularity as a public figure is there a way she can regain victimhood and popularity is that a, is that a wise strategy or should she does she need to stay away from being wounded either by Trump or by her husband? Yeah, I've been wondering about this, too, because one of the things that the inspector general's report um, deprived her of this week was the chance to try to navigate exactly what you're saying, like try to have this um, regurgitation of this past play in her favor by the way she addressed it. You could imagine some theoretical moment in which Hillary Clinton, in a very dignified way, talks about how this, how hurtful this was and tries to put it off limits. The problem for her is twofold. First of all, she's not um, a first lady anymore. She's trying to be the leader of the world, the leader of the country. And being the victim and the leader of the country, especially for a woman, I think that's a really hard performance to pull off. And then the second problem is that the social mores and judgments about sexual assault and harassment accusations have changed since all of this happened. And it's really hard to game out if Bill Clinton had been accused of these things in this moment, you know, what kind of reporting and investigations there would have been? Would we have put them to rest? Would they have been taken seriously so that then if they turned out not to be true, we would know that they were really taken seriously? All of that is like a big counterfactual that we don't have the answer to. And I think that makes it complicated for her in this moment in which some feminists talk about, you know, believing the victim, if not automatically, certainly like giving the victim the benefit of the doubt. And that's another kind of problematic box for Clinton. Okay, let's leave that topic there. And now let's hear a word from our first sponsor this week, which is ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? I run a small business. I own a company. I run a company. And finding people is incredibly hard. Right now, we're trying to hire for a position. And it's very tricky because you think, oh, my personal network will do it. Or, oh, the personal networks of my colleagues will do it. Or, you know, we'll just, you know, send out an email or post a tweet or, you know, list it on one job board and that should do it. But in fact, to find the candidates you need, you need to look broadly. You need to look outside of your personal networks. You need to Look out into the whole universe to, of talent that exists out there. And that takes help. So if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to over 100 job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 800,000 businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. Okay. You are a political GabFest listener, which means you are a fan of politics and the culture of politics. And you're probably somebody who's seen the war room in your life. Um, maybe you saw Street Fight, the documentary about Cory Booker's first effort to become mayor of Newark. 
there's an amazing political documentary that is just coming out called Wiener. And it is about, of course, Anthony Wiener, the former congressman from New York who was fell in 2011 when a sexting uh, scandal emerged involving him and sending photos of his erect penis to various women he'd met online and, you know, who he thought was sending, he thought he was sending to them privately, but whoops, he wasn't. Um, he emerged two years later to run for mayor of New York in 2013. He was briefly the favorite in the polls, was ahead in the polls. And then it came out that he had, he had continued his compulsive, crazy sexting behavior long after everyone thought he had stopped. His campaign limped on and he ended up losing badly in that Democratic primary. He is also somebody who's married to somebody famous. He's married to Huma Abedin, who is Hillary Clinton's closest advisor and kind of surrogate daughter. The entirety of his 2013 mayoral run was filmed by a pair of documentary filmmakers, one of whom used to work for Wiener. And everything is now available to see. Shocking amounts of things are now in public in this documentary wiener. It is the most revealing political documentary I've ever seen. It's just a strange movie. It's getting a theatrical release. I think it'll be then on television in the fall. I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. Emily, you've seen it too. John, I don't think you've had the chance to see it yet. Um, but we're going to we're going to talk about the phenomenon of this movie and about wiener. It's bananas. Did you Emily were you as taken with this movie as I was? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it really got under my skin. I thought about it a lot afterward, partly because it's so hard to understand why Wiener and Huma Abedin decided to make it. I mean, he obviously has this insatiable craving for attention, which he talks about in the film. But Huma Abedin doesn't seem to be that way. And she um, comes off in most to me, is extremely sympathetic, not to mention, like, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous at, like, every single moment. But I just can't really understand why they wanted to expose their marriage and relationship and his campaign to this kind of scrutiny. I guess, given how completely trashed his reputation was, maybe they thought they had little to lose, and maybe in some ways this will help rehabilitate him. But it's intimate to a point that is uncomfortable to watch at certain moments. Did you feel that way about it? Oh, absolutely. First of all, I just need to say, and just to get this slightly skeezy part out of the way one of the problems of the movie is that Huma Abedin is so beautiful that it's you can't it's almost weird watching the movie that she's so beautiful you just think like that's not a real person what is she doing in this movie with this schlubby congressman and it's distracting how beautiful she is so I, just I agree with that. that even if she's like chomping on pizza it's crazy yeah. um there's actually not that much like revelation of you know there's no, you don't see screaming fights between them you're just in every meeting you're in at the moment where we find out that he's got this whole other sexting thing that's about to be revealed we see them at when the woman who wiener had sexted with a woman who had the unbelievable name of sydney leathers shows up and is outside their election night party and the, the kind of scheming to try to avoid her we see wiener's confrontation with his staffers as they talk about how betrayed they feel by him so there's an, one moment where he kicks his staffers out of the room to have an intimate moment with i think with huma but he lets the camera stay which is like a kind of exposure and I don't even know, it's pathological. It's so crazy to to believe like that, that, that this intimacy with your wife should be 
public, it's insane. It, right. It Although for all of that, I totally agree with that. I have to say, though, I also felt guilty watching this movie. I remember saying really mean, caustic things about Anthony Weiner on the GabFest, getting responses from male listeners saying, like, hey, you would never have said that about a woman. You're being so unempathetic. Like, that's out of line. And he did just seem like a cartoon character to me. And he's totally not now that I've watched this movie. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, really? I still think he's a cartoon character. What what don't you think of it? He he doesn't have very much insight about himself. The fact that he compulsively like clearly he has no self control because he has the scandal it destroys him and he still cannot stop with the pathological sexual sexing behavior. That's number one. Number two is the way he he is obsessed with what people are saying about him and with engaging with people and fighting with people is kind of crazy. Like he can't let anything go. That's also crazy. And the fact that he has to watch himself over and over again. There's this moment where he goes and appears on an MSNBC show and gets into a fight. And then we see him re-watching his fight repeatedly and then asking Huma to come watch it. And you think any normal person is not going to sit there and and relive these these horrible experiences over and over again. But he he kind of feels like he isn't alive unless he's in public and angry or I don't know. It's just it it didn't. He didn't feel to me like a fully fleshed out human being. Well, he's pretty insensitive to the people around him and the impact he's having on people. And the strain that he's putting on Huma in particular comes across. He doesn't seem to be able to stop asking her for things. And you don't, as the viewer, at least I didn't feel like I really understood the terms of their relationship. And so it was felt a little bit like he was um, dominating her in a way that seemed bad but then also you feel like well she's a grown-up she's super smart she knows what she's doing that was confusing all that said there's a pathos to his persona in this movie that tugged at my heartstrings a little bit i agree that he's not normal there's nothing normal about this man but i no longer felt like he was a cartoon character the the other piece of it which the movie doesn't really get into is that john you you and i certainly disagree about elliot spitzer as a public figure and a human being and elliot is a friend of mine so we don't need to litigate that but like when you meet elliot spitzer and you talk to him and you watch his public there's no doubt this is a man who's hugely motivated by public service and by like has his grand ambitions for what he wants to do to help the public and huge ideas about it and is going to pursue them and and the way he pursues it may be bad and relentless and and unpleasant but but it's it's very motivated by a kind of sense of accomplishment in public service with wiener who had some of the same personality some of the same abrasiveness you don't actually get the sense that he's somebody who has a lot of ideas about political policy about what fair. he wants to do. I actually felt like his policy ideas about New York when he was running for mayor seemed pretty good. And there's like a little flick at the beginning to the, you know, speechifying he did about Part B Medicare or whatever it was that also seems like he's making a case for a liberal policy agenda. And also the movie isn't really about this stuff. So in that sense, like... It's. I think it's like slightly unfair to write him off. Also, the the, the distinction between Spitzer and Wiener is that what Spitzer did was in totally the. I mean, he was as an officer of the law prosecuting and and punishing people for the same kind of behavior that he was engaging in. That is a much higher level of hypocrisy than what Wiener did, which was just skeezy personal behavior. Totally different situations. I know that's not the point you were making, but it's why the two cases are different. And also, by the way, 
still true in both cases that the worst thing you do is not the most important thing about you or the thing that defines you the most. So I'm a huge fan of redemptive and uh, and seeing the whole person uh, evaluations of people. So uh, I just want to be on record. I guess what's what's weird about Wiener is that you right he runs for mayor and I. I certainly, when he ran for mayor in 2013, I'm not a New York voter, so I didn't have no say in it, but I was very willing to kind of entertain the possibility that he could be mayor and that he deserved a hearing. The worst thing that he had done, I don't know what the worst thing he'd done is, was sexting with somebody, but it certainly was the most publicly stupid thing he'd done. For him to to come forth as a redeemed soul, to come forth as a, as like I've learned and I'm here to, I'm here to serve, but yet not to have fixed that, that's a kind of crazy that that's pretty unforgivable in politics. I don't think he could ever have a political career. Right. Like you do get a chance to redeem yourself. You do get a chance for the public to hear from you again. But my God, don't just do the same stupid thing you did before. Right. You don't you get show to play up. that card twice. That seemed really clear to the media and the voters that they weren't going to go for that. Can I, but think about the number of politicians. And of course this is different now than it was in the past, but the number of politicians, successful politicians who were drunks, and fell on and off the wagon and survived careers. I'm not sure that would happen today, but still, I guess my point is this behavior, which is obviously a kind of addiction and obviously has roots in narcissism and other other qualities that would affect one's public life, is so much more looked down upon than if, and we've talked about this before, if it was a hooker versus what Wiener was caught doing, it like it seems like the hooker is more normalized and therefore would be less of a problem. Yeah, and I, and actually just just to argue against the point I made a second ago, Bill Clinton is basically Anthony Weiner, but he with women he has sex with. I mean Bill Clinton there's very strong evidence that Bill Clinton had sex outside of marriage or some form of untoward relationship with uh, Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Willey, uh, Paula Jones, and then while as president, Monica Lewinsky. And yet here I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to forgive Bill Clinton and to allow him to continue in public life and be a grand figure, despite that pathological compulsive behavior that he behaved with around sex. And so I don't know where I get off saying that Wiener, Wiener doesn't get a third chance. Well, this goes back to like, no, if you send around a picture of your penis, then that's going to be with people, that image. And that's just like a fact of the internet that he screwed up in a particularly embarrassing, scorching way. Can I also just share, I just, on every occasion when I talk about Anthony Weiner, I have to tell the story, which I believe, I'm sure I've told on the show before, but which I think is so revealing about him, which is that during his first campaign, he would go door to door and knock on doors, and this must be in Queens or Brooklyn, and, uh, you know, sometimes people would talk to him, but often people would open the door, see it was a politician, and to, or see it was Weiner, and just kind of immediately shut the door and he did this thing where as they're shutting the door in his face he would always yell wiener at them because and he said i think he said this to a new york observer reporter he's like i like that to be the last thing they hear (laughs) oh god did you guys also wonder like what's going to happen to him i found myself googling him trying to figure out like what kind of future he could possibly have he was he had some gig at like a lobbying firm or something and they fired him because essentially they figured out he couldn't really overcome his past. And there does seem to be something sad about that. Yeah, I don't I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about that. But it's not I'm the sure, best use I'm of sure one's mental energy, but I couldn't help myself. You know, I don't 
I worry, I don't know if, do I worry? I don't know. It seems like in political life now you have all of these compulsory exercises and I don't know whether they're really any good for uh, for us. With the one compulsory exercise is you have to write a bio and a book before you launch your career and your campaign. And then now it feels like you have to have the movie that comes out afterwards that, you know, is the sympathetic look. Sometimes it's in your control. Other times it's documentarians. And it all feels like a part of the, a little bit a part of the con. On the other hand, if you do... I guess, well, here's my final question to you, David, which is when you saw this, did you think, huh, or both of you, do you get a, 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 like a more rounded view of this one politician that gives you sympathy for other politicians? Or is he such a unique case and the characters involved in this have such particular pathologies that it's interesting on its own terms, but it doesn't tell us anything larger about politicians, about being in the public light, about moments of scandal or moments of firestorm controversy, how there's still a human at the heart of that, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Is there any larger lesson to draw? Hmm. I vote against larger lesson. And I found when I was reading the coverage or reading the interviews with the um, makers of the film, I felt like that was reaching for something that isn't really there because these people are so specific. It just felt like it was their crazy story. I was fascinated by it. But aside from the quite banal insight that every politician is also a human being, that was, I felt like I was just watching their lives unfold. You know, it's funny. I was just, I'm sort of running through my head about politicians I know. And I know some, many fewer than you. And it there are, I would say it divides about 50-50. About half of the politicians I know I think of as being genuinely real people with real human lives and basically normal, normal psychology with what, you know, you know, undoubtedly have, have vagaries in it, but basically normal psychology. And then about half of them I think of as being sort of pathological in a Wienerian way, which is like not exactly having a center, only living when they're in the public light, having a, a kind of egomania and, self-centeredness and lack of awareness about other people like about half of the politicians i know do fit that so maybe wiener isn't unusual he's somewhere on a scale of which which uh, politicians can be on but not all of them are on political gabfest is brought to you by goldman sachs for answers to the world's most pressing economic questions from finance's role in addressing climate change to the implications of central bank policy decisions tune into exchanges at goldman sachs the firm's podcast Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries, and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or listen at gs.com slash podcast. All right. Something miraculous happened this week, which is an event occurred that made Gawker, the Gawker media empire, appear sympathetic. We, of course, have talked a lot about the Gawker case, the lawsuit that Hulk Hogan brought against Gawker over invasion of privacy involving a sex tape that Hulk Hogan was in. We don't need to go into the incredibly confusing and skeezy facts of that case. But needless to say, there's been a ton of talk about it. Hulk Hogan won a $140 million judgment at trial a couple of months ago. Gawker is now appealing. News came this week, first in the form of a New York Times story in which Nick Denton, the owner of Gawker, speculated that Hogan's lawsuit had been backed by a financial backer and that, in fact, the legal strategy was designed less to maximize Hogan's gain than to maximize the harm to Gawker for a variety of technical reasons. There were ways that certain certain, uh, certain 
charges and certain claims were made that they dropped a claim that the insurance company would have covered which usually you don't do because the insurance company has deep pockets suggesting that really they were just out to ruin gawker right and the refusal of hogan to settle despite very generous settlement offers Offers. um the fact that there were other claims other lawsuits brought against gawker kind of at suspiciously at the same time so denton speculated to the new york times that that there was a financial backer, he thought maybe someone out of Silicon Valley. News comes a day later via Forbes that Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, the founder of the data mining company Palantir, board member of Facebook, noted libertarian, seasteading, you know, mega billionaire of Silicon Valley is in fact the person behind the Hogan lawsuit and has been funding it to the tune of perhaps $10 million. Thiel says he is animated by what he regards as Gawker's consistent invasions of privacy and attempts to destroy the personal lives of what he regards as private citizens. And he, Teal, was, in fact, a victim of this. I think it is fair to say he was a victim of this when in 2007, Gawker outed him as gay, outed him to the broader public. People in his circle knew, but they outed him to the broader public that he was gay. Emily, start with a legal question. There's no bar on Teal funding the legal fees for Hogan, correct? Right. I mean, there's a whole cottage industry of third-party litigation finance, and usually people invest in a case for financial reasons. So you have a potentially huge damages claim, but in order to prove it, you're going to have to hire a whole bunch of expensive experts and spend a lot of money on lawyers, and you don't have the money up front to do that. And so somebody takes a bet that it's going to pay off, and at the end, there's going to be a windfall, and they're going to get a big chunk of it. But what Peter Thiel did, obviously, is very different. He was exercising a personal vendetta against Gawker. He was trying to take Gawker down. It wasn't about getting compensated himself. He wasn't making a financial investment. He's been clear about that. He didn't really care whether there was any return on the money. He thinks that the level of invasion of privacy that Gawker has engaged in is not protected by the First Amendment and isn't necessary in order to protect um, freedom of the press and freedom of speech in this country. So it's a really interesting take on how to think about these questions. And I mean, to me, it's mostly just incredibly chilling. The idea that a billionaire is going to essentially decide to take down one aggressive media, I guess you could say media empire, I just kind of can't get over that, the power that one super, super wealthy person could decide to exercise. That said, you know, I'm, I understand why there are criticisms of Gawker. I mean, I would rather live in a world with Gawker than without it. The idea that they should have to pay a $140 million judgment that could bankrupt them, I think, is bad for the world, for the press. There are journalists I respect at Gawker. However, outing people for being gay when they don't want that written about, and even just the airing of the Hulk Hogan sex tape, like, we're talking about really the outer bounds here of the freedom of the press. If I believed that you could really, like, separate them out, maybe I would have some tiny shred of sympathy for Teal's stance. But it just, it's this, like, incredibly um, incendiary set of facts. John, what do you think about it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's incendiary, except what if this were about a company? They keeps it from the slippery slope argument, I guess, is my point, which is that if this is a, about corporations that are harming people or about government malfeasance, it seems like a court would say, Mr. Billionaire, you don't like 
this was a perfectly legitimate story to run. So that it doesn't seem like this opens the door to a huge number of of uh, lawsuits against le- more legitimate uh, uh, kinds of press inquiries. I don't know. Uh, I disagree. You're assuming that what matters is who wins in the end. And in fact, when you file a lawsuit and you keep it going for years and you force reporters or editors or whoever to take depositions and spend their time, you can have a really chilling effect on free speech, even if you're going to lose in the end. Right. Yeah, so, well, that's so, what the government does. I mean, so that happens already. Right, but the government well, is chosen by the public and exercise, acting in the public interest. You can say that the government is too heavy-handed in, in its legal, what it does in prosecution or in civil cases, and it's a form of harassment. But it is, that's a, an accountable institution. Peter Thiel is not accountable. There, this is, and this is not the only case of this. There was this incredible lawsuit filed against Mother Jones by an Idaho billionaire attempting essentially to do something similar to Mother Jones. Mother Jones fought it very successfully and won last, I think it was last year, they won the case. But it, right, it but was, it was very unpleasant. In and all costly. kinds of ways. Yeah. And I, what I guess I, I wonder is, if Thiel had done this under his, his own name, if he had brought the case himself, he, I'm not sure he had a cause of action, but let's say he'd managed to gin up a cause of action, would you feel the same sense of disturbance? Is, it, is the problem that he is harassing Gawker or is that he's harassing Gawker shielded from public view and that for years he got away with doing this. I find the secrecy to be totally part of the problem. And so when I was reading, he did an interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times yesterday after he was exposed, explaining his position. And he's super articulate in his critique of Gawker. But if, if he was really so you know, full of a sense of righteousness about this. Why didn't he come out and say what he was doing years ago? The secrecy shows that there is something um, underhanded and really suspect about being a billionaire funding someone else's lawsuit. And he also, of course, is somebody who has made his money from uh, two companies he's made his money from, Facebook and Palantir, are both... PayPal. Well, no, but he he also... Two two of those companies, Palantir and Facebook, are both companies that make their money... With a form of invasion of privacy. Right. Good point. That they, that they are companies that are that are finding out tremendous amounts of information and sharing it and distributing it in ways the public doesn't necessarily know about, doesn't control, and could be victimized by in ways they And don't they're know. super secretive even as they're doing this and don't, you know, can't handle the press asking basic questions. What, John, do you think there should be any consequences for Teal? Other than people will now, whenever his name is mentioned, uh, be like, oh, that's that guy who funded that lawsuit secretly. Should there be any other consequence? In the public or in the legal system? Um, More in the public. I don't think. I wonder if the public has broadly has sympathy for this. I bet people don't. I bet people don't like the way much of what Gawker does. Well, that's that's the interesting piece of this, which is that clearly, I think if you polled the public on the. Hulk Hogan versus Gawker, Hulk Hogan would have gotten more sympathy. I mean, Hulk Hogan won that case easily. He won it. The jury gave him many, much more as an award than he'd even asked for. So it's clear that the on the merits of that case. But Hulk Hogan was the plaintiff and was the victim. Whether Teal as the Bond villain financier behind it all would get the same sympathy, I don't know. Although you get to you point to something interesting, which is that we do have this situation where in the case of Trump and maybe in the case of Teal, the the 
swirling up of outrage against media elite finds a lot of sympathy in the public generally, even when it's a billionaire doing it. Right. I think that's right. And I think the, the, the class that's most in danger here is the reporter class, is the media that wants to have free open inquiry into the powerful. And if this is another way for the powerful to protect themselves, then that's terrible. And I also think if you add up both sides of the ledger, you have, so they have these, these billionaires in the case of Trump and Teal who are in each way kind of making an assault on the First Amendment. But on the other side of the ledger, you have Warren Buffett, who owns 32 newspapers. You have Michael Bloomberg and Rupert Murdoch, who've made billions in supporting a free and vibrant press. And Jeff Bezos, who's a tech billionaire who's invested an enormous amount in improving a great newspaper, making it even better and more aggressive in the world. So I don't know that I don't know that all of the tide is running against the power of the press right now, although the the teal example is pretty demoralizing. Now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Hiscox. Starting a business takes guts. Many entrepreneurs risk big for rewards that aren't guaranteed. Here's some of their stories on the new podcast, Points of Courage, brought to you by Hiscox. This series captures conversations about the moments that encourage making the leap to start a business and how to approach the challenges that come with it. Hosted by Jessica Jackley, author, public speaker, and co-founder of Kiva.org, the world's first crowdfunded microlender, Points of Courage is a powerful resource for active and aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, and anyone who believes nothing great is achieved without risk. Get an intimate look into the realities and rewards of running a business in America. Subscribe to Points of Courage wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X dot com. Hiscox. Encourage courage. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. So when you, John Dickerson, are kicking back after awesome Face the Nation this weekend, you're like, I just want to. I'm done interviewing people. I just want to expound on something to my children. I'm going to chatter about this. What is this? I will sit them down in front of New York Magazine. There's a great little battle going on across Canal Street between two offices where... where, Okay, so the two office buildings have very particular kinds of windows. I think they're basically four by seven blocks of windows. And the two buildings started messaging each other with post-it notes posted in the windows of one building, and then the other building would respond. But then it got totally out of hand in the most delightful way, which is that they started creating really detailed and Baroque images on their windows and to see who could top the other. And there's like Spider-Man, there are characters from The Simpsons, different kinds of drawings and characters created. It's just like wonderful whimsy Whimsy in the middle of the day is uh, something I'm a huge fan of. So go check it out on New York Magazine. Awesome. Emily Labaz, what are you going to chat about? Amnesty International this week, as it signaled last summer, as a, put out an official policy recommending in favor of decriminalizing sex work around the world, which is a big deal and will call down a um, ton of criticism on Amnesty's head. And, you know, hopefully... 
I hesitate to say interesting debate because this debate is so vitriolic, but one of the most interesting things Amnesty did was they put out, along with this recommendation, reports about four countries where their Amnesty folks had gone and interviewed a ton of people, and they're looking at this question of sex work and the law. And one of the countries was Norway, which has a model that has become, that's gained momentum. France um, and Northern Ireland passed laws recently which make it illegal to buy sex or to profit from the sex industry, but not to sell sex. So the idea basically is to stop arresting women and start punishing men. And Amnesty's report on Norway is really an indictment of this model, showing that the way it plays out on the ground is incredibly punitive towards women. Which, if you think about it, makes sense, because if the whole idea is to stop, to end prostitution, and that is what these laws are designed to do, then it's not surprising that in the end you would have things like women getting evicted from their homes or getting deported even though they're not getting arrested. So if you're interested in this issue, check out this report that Amnesty wrote. It's an interesting part of the debate. I wrote a short post about it for the Times Magazine. Cool. My chatter is about a podcast that is new to me called Tumon Bay. That is from the BBC. I come to you GabFest listeners probably every three months with some new new podcast crush. And uh, I apologize for being so fickle and and they're they're podcasts that i've that i've really spoken up for before which i've even chattered about and then i actually turned on i'm not going to mention what they are tumon bay is the best of these fictional podcasts that i have listened to if you were a fan of i claudius or game of thrones for that matter you're going to love tumon bay it's a soap operatic epic sweeping tale of a fictionalized version of the mamluk slave empire in egypt and i guess around a thousand a.d and it's just awesomely gripping. There is so much drama, blood, sex, violence, scheming, poisons, you know, mysterious objects. It's really, really, really fun. It's made by the BBC, so everyone speaks with this wonderful accent. There are a lot of both British and then, I guess, Anglo-Indian and Arab English, too. So there's, like, wonderful accents, and it sounds fantastic. The casting is great. The sound effects are great. You will love it. Tumon Bay. I think it's T-U-M-A-N-B-A-Y. Tumon Bay is the city in which it takes place, the fictionalized city. It's great. That does it for the show today. Our new intern is Kevin Townsend. Welcome, Kevin. Good, nice research brief this week. Thank you. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash Gabfest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our email address is Gabfest at slate.com. And our Twitter feed, of course, is at Slate Gabfest. And please subscribe to us in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Remember our July 13th live show in D.C., slate.com slash live for tickets to that. We will talk to you next week. Music